0: Each one of us has uh, yeah, many questions that we face in life that are very important to us. I think about you know, what college you're going to go to, what profession you want to choose, who will you marry, what will retirement look like, how do I handle the end-of-life decisions. I mean, there's a lot of questions that are important to us that really each one of us face at one point in life. And, and, and they're important. We've got to get them right. We don't want to just be close on these questions. We want to We want to nail them to the degree that we can. Well, you know, Jesus is going to, in this text today, ask us a question that I think trumps them all. It's really the ultimate question. Now, you know where we are in this storyline. At this point, Jesus is still in the temple. He's locked. He's been locked in a day of conflict with the religious leadership. You know, they've been trying to, you know, three different groups at three different times with three different questions They've tried to undermine him. They've tried to discredit him. They've tried to erode the popularity that he has with people. And uh, each time Jesus responds to them with this stunning brilliance and wisdom, such that the people are being drawn to him. And so here we are after the third question, really the interrogation, if you will, uh, he turns the tables and asks them a question. And he asked them this ultimate question, this question that I think trumps, you know, the the, the time, the consideration we ought to give to this question would trump our financial struggles, our marital issues, and all the other cultural and worldly issues that we face as a nation. It's that significant of a question. And when we look at this question, so I I want to look at this passage. It's kind of following in the same template as we've seen the past number of weeks. You know, you have Jesus is going to ask a question. He's going to ask the question. And then then secondly, he's going to correct their answer. So they're going to give him an answer, and he's going to correct that answer. And then we're going to see the patience of Jesus exercised to those who are stubborn and hard-hearted. We're going to see his mercy to them. So we're going to see three things. He's going to ask a question. We're going to see it in 41 and 42. And then we'll move to the correct answer and and then how Jesus exercises patience. So if you will, join with me in Matthew 22. I'll read 41 to 46. So now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him, any more questions. So we have here Jesus asking a question. Now, you can see in the 41, in verse 41, we're in the same scene. They were gathered together. So you, know, you kind of see the religious leadership. They're kind of huddled together. They're plotting. They're scheming. Maybe they're thinking of taking another run at Jesus. I don't know. But they're scheming against him. And this is what moves Jesus to not wait for them to come to him. He goes right to them. And he says, hey, let me ask you a question. And then he speaks about What do you think about the Christ? Now, remember, Christ is a Greek word, Christos, right? It's the same word in Hebrew for Messiah, Mashiach. Messiah, it means anointed one. So he's asking them about this anointed one that would come from God to deliver. And he's saying, whose son is he? What's his lineage? Now, this is not a difficult question, frankly. You can see the answer. They don't deliberate. They just come right off. It's the son of David. How do they know the answer so quick? Well, this was a studied point of theology. You know, These Jewish leaders had been waiting for this son of David to come to deliver Israel back to fulfilling God's perfect plan. and This was clearly laid out in Scripture. Let me just give you a few as examples. In 2 Samuel, we read, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring. So God here is talking to King David, and he's saying, I'll raise up your offspring or your son to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. So they had been trained to see from the line of David there's going to be a son that God is going to uniquely establish from David's body. There's going to be a human king, from David's body, this is to be establishing as king forever. Psalm 89 says something similar. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. It's a big promise coming from God. That from David, there will be a great king over Israel. You wait. God's made this promise. So we see the same thing in Isaiah. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forevermore. So you kind of see this promise articulated in Scripture that one is coming, an anointed one, a Christ, a Messiah. He's going to come and be the answer to all of our problems. And so that's what they're looking for. That's why they answered it so quickly. Now, really, these promises here, you know they hearken back even before 2 Samuel, all the way back in Genesis 3.15. You know, you have the collision of sinful man and woman with God, which ends up in the, in the expelling of Adam and Eve from the garden, which has really the answer as to why life is not the way it's supposed to be. Our life now, even as pristine as yours may be, is not as good as God intended. And, and, and so they were looking, who will deliver? In Genesis 3.15, the woman was said, your offspring, your seed, your son, will crush the head of the serpent. We saw it again in Genesis 12, the promised Abraham, your seed will bless the nations. So all along the redemptive history, God has promised one to come. So when Jesus said to them, what do you think about the Christ? They knew who it was. It's going to be the son of David, the one promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. We're waiting for him. He's the one we're waiting for. Now, when they understood the king of David, the son of David to come, they saw it more in earthly or human terms. They would look at this Messiah as really a superhero, if you will, a national, a political, a religious figure that would reestablish David's throne that would expel the Romans, that would put Israel back on a place of prominence in the world stage. That's what they were looking for, a a king that would bring justice and righteousness, but a human king. So they were right, but only in part. They got half of it, but they didn't get the whole. Now, what do you think about that question? Because really, it's a question for every generation. What do you think about the Christ? It's a question I ask people regularly. It's a quick identifier as to where they are in the faith. What do you think of Christ? You know, throughout the ages, it has been given all kinds of various answers. Let me give you just a few examples. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson said, Jesus is the most perfect of all men that have yet appeared on the earth. He's a perfect man. He sees him as a man. That's, that's a high accolade. I mean, none of us would probably receive that. But it's inadequate. John Stuart Mill, the English philosopher, says he is the pattern of perfection for humanity. Again, this this high view, but still inadequate. What do other religions teach? Islam teaches, of course, that Jesus is just a prophet and lower than Muhammad. Krishna's the religion sees Jesus as a guru. Christian scientists see him as just a man. Jehovah's Witnesses, they see him as Michael the Archangel, kind of a a created being that becomes God. The Mormons see him as the spirit brother of Lucifer. So, I mean, the answers are all over the page. I mean, you have some giving high accolades, some really demeaning him. But what do you think? If you were to be with me just having coffee, what would you say to me? Would you say he's a teacher, a prophet, a revolutionist, that that he's going to set about a revolution? Do you think he's a moralist, just a good man? I mean, all those are partially true, but they're not fully true. So who do you say that he is? I mean, this is really what the whole passage turns on. What do you say about this Christ? Well, Jesus is going to give a correct answer. So look with me at 43 and to 45, because Jesus is going to do something here with the Scriptures that is really quite fascinating. Many of us, I think, may read through this passage and we get a little twisted up in all the four questions, because there's really four of them in the text, and, uh, and we just motor on through. Uh, but what Jesus is going to do is he's going to reference Psalm 110, and he's going to use this psalm to show a profound understanding of the Messiah, much richer, much more full than they had. Now, Matthew assumes you understand this is Psalm 110. He assumes you've read it, you know it. And so Jesus quotes it here. He says this. Let me give you the question that Jesus asks. He says, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet? Okay, so hang with me through this. So they see Jesus as the son of David as a man. He's a man. He's a superman but he's still a man. So Jesus says to them, well, then how does David call him Lord? Now, remember, David wrote Psalm 110. That's an important piece of information. You see it in the superscription. A superscription is if you were, you don't have to now, if you were to turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 110, these little letters underneath some of the Psalms are identifying either the writer of the Psalm or the context in which the Psalm was written. Again, not all the Psalms have them, many do. And this one has a Psalm of David. So the superscription identifies it as a Psalm of David. But we see that Jesus does as well when he asks the question, How is it then that David, so he's given David authorship of the Psalm, but not only does he do that, he says it was under the inspiration of the Spirit. So Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is saying that God inspired David to write this psalm. So the content of the psalm is from God himself. So David's the author here. And so when Jesus says, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? So look in verse 44. The Lord says to my Lord. We have two Lords here. The first Lord would be uh, Yahweh, the personal name of God. So God says to my Lord is what the psalmist is writing. Now, if David's writing the psalm, then that second Lord cannot be David. It has to be someone other than David and obviously someone far, far greater than David because God is talking to this Lord. He's saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So he's giving this second Lord, if you will, all authority and glory and power. It's one equal with God. And so Jesus' question to these Pharisees is remember now they're thinking Jesus, or they're thinking that this Messiah is just a man. He says, Well, then how can David call him Lord? He has to be the Messiah. And this Messiah must be divine because he's at the right hand of God, conferring with God, all the enemies under his feet. So he must be something more. Then, David comes, then Jesus comes back around with another question on the other side, and he says, well, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, this is where they're stumped. They've got nothing to say. If they admit Jesus' questions are right, then this, this Messiah must be David's Lord and David's son. I mean, the son of David is also the son of God. And for them to admit that, they didn't have categories for that. That the Messiah would be fully man, the son of David, and fully God. Conferring with God, equal with God in all ways. I mean, this this broke every paradigm they had. I mean, think about that for a minute. God, the Lord, says to my Lord. So this Jesus, this Messiah, is going to sit at the right hand of God. Now, you know that's an expression for absolute preeminence. Authority, power, glory. God is sharing his glory with the one at his right hand. That's never, God doesn't share his glory with anyone, says in Isaiah. But not only that, he's going to put all of his enemies under his feet. That's a Middle Eastern expression, that the conquering king would rest his foot on the neck of the defeated king. Absolute authority. Absolute submission from the defeated king. And so what this is being said about this Messiah is he's not just sitting at the right hand of God, but he's going to rule over everything as God. So you see this is just, I'm sure, twisting the minds of these Pharisees. But, you know, we've already been privy to this because going through the gospel of Matthew, have we not seen this? I mean, did, did Matthew not make clear to us that he's been a son of David? Wasn't it from the first chapter when we go through the lineage, he's the son of Abraham and he's the son of David? Or in chapter 2, he's born in Bethlehem, which is the town of David. Or every time or many times, I think eight or nine times through the gospel, after a miracle, they will say the son of David. Even the people were beginning to recognize. And Matthew recorded, they saw him as the son of David. So we see the human nature of Jesus. He got tired. He ate. He fatigued. Matthew has made made clear the humanness of Jesus. But we've also seen the divine nature of Jesus. I mean, think of what Jesus raises the dead. He cleanses the leper. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. The lame walk. He calms the wind. He stills the water. He feeds thousands with a few fish and a few loaves. He knows what's in the minds of other people. When they haven't said anything, he accepts the worship of God. He calls himself by the names of God. So, Matthew has been very clear to hold up the humanness of Jesus as well as the divinity. This is, this is the paradox that, that these Jewish leaders could not overcome that he's David's Lord and he's David's son. He's the son of David, and he's the son of God. And I think, if you just stop with me for a minute, this passage does help us have a window into the heart of men and women, why they have trouble believing in Jesus. I mean, these Pharisees could not get over it. They couldn't understand two natures in one person. People struggle. It was outside their paradigm. It was outside their their preconceived ideas. They had an understanding of the Messiah being a human ruler, and this, this was outside of that. In other words, it doesn't make sense to the rationalist that Jesus could be both fully God and fully man. Now, I'm not saying Christianity is not rational, and I'm not saying it's not reasonable. I'm just saying it doesn't make sense to the rationalist. In other words, you cannot discover this truth through logic or through empirical evidence or rational thinking. You cannot arrive at this. In fact, I would say, you know, we're in this age of show me proof and I'll believe it. I I shared with a neighbor once about the Christian faith years ago, and he said, nope, unless you can make it absolutely proof-worthy, I won't believe it. And I said, there's nothing we can make absolutely proof-worthy. I I mean, you can't prove worthy, you you can't have proof that your wife's going to be faithful to you and you're still going to marry her, or that you'll be faithful. Nothing can come with absolute proof. I mean, it's almost arrogant of us to demand that God would furnish evidence in an empirical way so that it can satisfy our understanding of what is proof. And not only is it arrogant, it's kind of narrow-minded, because it's a very Western thought, empirical data. You know, empirical data is what we have drunk deeply from, and that establishes proof. But it isn't that way for, for Africans. They don't look for empirical data as the Westerner does. It's kind of narrow-minded to say that it's got to come that way. We even see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says Jews demand a sign, but Greeks demand wisdom. So even between the Greeks and the Jews, they establish truth on different means. For some of us, we establish truth on empirical data. If you can, if you can repeat the experiment, then I'll believe it. Others don't look for that. They look for power. They look for miracles. For them, that establishes truth. So we want to be mindful to not demand certain things from God in terms of how can we understand this fully God and fully man. Paul warns us of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So right there. I mean, God is choosing to not be known through the empirical, rational wisdom of this world. So when I ask you the question again, what do you think of Christ? What do you think about the Christ? Do you see now how saying he's a teacher, he's, a, he's a, a revolutionary, he liberates, or he's a moral? Do you see how that doesn't work? Because Jesus is using Psalm 110 to reveal himself to them saying, no, I am fully God and I'm fully man. I'm the unique God-man sent to save. We see this transition happen in the life of Paul, the apostle. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul believed that, that this, this Messiah would be the son of David, this human king. That's what he believed originally. But then he came around to see, no, 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 Jesus is both fully God and fully man. In Romans chapter 1, we read this, that he writes, he says, his son, speaking in reference to Jesus, his son who was descended from David according to the flesh, there it is, the human Messiah, was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see the two, Paul came to understand Jesus is both fully man and he is fully God. So, so, so we don't want to, we don't want to, feel that we have liberty to just speak about Jesus in terms that we want, but really how, in terms that he has revealed himself to be. But how do we come to this, though? I mean, what's the Christians say to this? How do we come to faith? How do we approach this God-man? Well, I would just give you four things to consider regarding how do we approach this idea, this idea of being corrected, if you will. Perhaps you're being corrected today. Perhaps you haven't understood this. Well, the first thing I think we need to consider is acknowledge that his ways are beyond our ways. I mean, to believe in this Jesus, we have to acknowledge that God's ways are beyond tracing out, that, that we don't want to demand God. We don't want to have to demand from God that he furnish evidence to us in a means that is just according to our sensibility. Uh, we want to humble ourselves. We want to ask for grace to believe. We want to ask for grace to understand. This is a mystery that you will never fully lock down. It's not like arithmetic where once you learn 2 plus 2 equals 4, you have it forever. It's not that way. In fact, Paul says it this way in Romans 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? How inscrutable his ways. We can't trace them out, people. I mean, we have to humble ourselves under this great mystery of God and just stand in awe of it. It it doesn't beg for us to, to take it apart and figure out how it works, it stands there for us to believe it and worship him that he would take on flesh for us to save us. It's a mystery. You'll have eternity to roll it over in your mind and be overwhelmed with it. But then secondly, don't just acknowledge that. Believe it. I'm asking you to sink your trust in this Messiah, this Messiah who is fully man. So he is identifiable. You can touch him. That's what 1 John says. The one we touched, the one we heard. I mean, we know him. He's accessible. He's identifiable. He's come to reveal God to us. He's like us in every way. He's been subject to the temptations that we've been subject to. There is nothing you can say, he doesn't know how I feel. He not only knows it cognitively, but he also knows it in experience. He has come to become like us. He's sympathetic to us because he knows what we experience. I'm glad he is fully man. I'm glad he, well, you don't know the way I'm feeling. I mean, you may know it in your mind, but you haven't walked through it like I, he can see us a half. So he's fully man, but believe that he's fully God. You have to believe this, because if he's not fully God, how can he satisfy divine justice? If he isn't perfect himself, how can he sacrifice, how can he satisfy the perfect justice of God? So he has to be perfect to be a sufficient sacrifice. So our salvation hangs on that, that we have no assurance of salvation apart from his perfection. There, was no, there wasn't even deceit found in him. He was without sin, but like us. So believe, that's the Jesus we have to believe in. That's the Jesus that's going to take us to the throne of grace and say, he's mine, he's saved. This is the one we cling to. This is the one we, when you close your eyes in this life, please don't look for your uncle. Look for him. Open your eyes to him because he's the one that's going to be bringing you to the Father. He will forever be our advocate. He will forever be the one revealing God to us. He will forever be the son to us. So believe in that. And when I believe, I mean trust, rest in that. When you feel guilty, when you feel as if God doesn't, run to Christ, look to Christ. This is the one upon whom God says, I'm well pleased in him. And those in him, he is still well pleased. And then thirdly, celebrate him. I mean, I'm glad he's beyond our paradigms. I'm glad he goes beyond any categories we have. Can you imagine a God, of, a God in our mold? I bet he'd look just like us. We'd make him just like us because we love ourselves so much. I'm glad he's outside of our mold. I'm glad he, he breaks any idea, any fashion. So you look at all the religions of the world. They're all man-made or demonically made. But they don't, they don't have the beauty and the pristine and the glory of this faith that has been delivered to us by God through his spirit. I mean, celebrate him with me. Celebrate that he's at the right hand right now. He's the Lord over all creation. He's sovereign over all things. He sits in the heaven. A king sits when his work is done. He is powerful. Nothing gets beyond him. There's going to be no threat. There's no terrorism. There's no cancer. There's nothing that's going to sneak around the back and somehow surprise him. He sits in the heavens. He intercedes with the Father in Hebrews 7. He's pleading for us now before the Father. He communicates his presence to us through his Spirit now. He's still calling men and women to himself from the throne right now. I mean, celebrate him. Let's rejoice over his greatness, his personal ministry to us right now. He's the head or the body. So when Saul was persecuting the church before becoming Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? There's this intrinsic relationship between God and us, excuse me, between Jesus Christ, the head of the church, and us right now. So let's celebrate him. let's rejoice over him. And, and, and then last, let's deliberate on this day when all the enemies will be put under, under his feet. Let's think about that day where every injustice will be made right. Where every bit of chaos in our Our world right now is in a bit of chaos. I mean, of chaos with terrorism. We got chaos on college campuses. We've just we've got a a sort of an uneven time we're walking through right now. And yet, think about that day when all things will be made right. We kind of live between the swells of God's revelation. You know, if you've ever been on an ocean liner out in the ocean, you see these huge swells. And they can be quite large. In fact, you know, you can be in the bottom of a swell, in the lull of a swell, and not even see the sun, they can be so high. And so if you imagine Jesus' first coming as a swell of revelation, God has revealed Himself in Christ in the flesh coming, live and die for us. And then if you think of another swell being his return coming and consummating the kingdom in all glory, then we kind of live in the lull right now. We live in this lull. Sometimes it seems hard to trust and see that, that future day. And so it's hard to have faith. That's why we want to deliberate. That day is coming. It is coming. I don't know if our days will end before that day or if that day comes in our days. I don't know. But, but I know that we live between the two swells. And so it often seems dark. And I want to remind you that that is just a good reminder that we're pilgrims in this world right here. That we can't expect some utopian experience in life, that, that we live in the lull. You know, I was reading through Hebrews chapter 11 the other day. I've been reading through the book of Hebrews on a kind of continual basis. And you know, in Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the Hall of Faith because it just has this listing of all these various saints, these people who died in faith. And it speaks about all these people who died in faith without seeing the promise, but they hung tough. They were in faith, even though many of them were sawn in two, fed to lions, killed. And here's what, and I never noticed it, but in the string of all these saints, the writer of Hebrews inserts this little mini-theology, in my opinion, of how they hung tough in faith. And here's what he writes. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. In other words, what keeps us safe in the lull is desiring the better country to deliberate on that day when Jesus will be crowned in glory and honor and all enemies will be subjected to him. This is how we come to this fully God, fully man, Christ, this this Messiah that has been sent to save. So we see Jesus ask a question, what do you think about Christ? And then he gives this answer, he corrects their answer by saying, I am the Christ, fully God and fully man. But then look at 46 because it's really a kind of a, implicitly, I believe, a sweet picture of Jesus. You know, it speaks about their silence. It says that they were not able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. It is kind of an interesting contrast that they were asking him questions to discredit and undermine him. When Jesus asks the question of them, it isn't seeking to destroy them. He's seeking to draw them. He's not confronting them, he's inviting them to himself. He's saying, Who is the, what do you think about the Christ? And then he shows them in Psalm 110 how he is the Christ, fully God and fully man. It's, it's the kindness of, of Jesus to do this, that even these stubborn, hard-hearted, you know, these destroy, they were seeking to destroy him, and yet he still invites them to repent and believe. And they don't. They walk away. They have nothing else to say. He was just too far outside their preconceived ideas. It really really breaks your heart. They saw the miracles. They heard the wisdom. They were standing before the face of the Messiah. And they walked away because he wasn't what they expected. It's a reminder to us. uh, Just regarding evangelism, you know, people can see miracles and they can hear wisdom and turn and walk away. That's pride, arrogance, outside the paradigm. I don't know what it is for each individual case, but they walk away. And yet he stands there ready to save. And do you know in Acts chapter 6, we read that some priests did believe? Maybe there were some soft hearted ones. Maybe there, were some, maybe there were some Pharisees in this group that really did hear, they really did listen and they humbled themselves. I mean, I I can imagine that there were, because we know that they came to faith later. Some did. So it's a warning to the non-Christian here. In fact, for me, this is kind of a little snapshot of what it will be on, like, the day of judgment. This is a serious situation. We often kind of envision, at least I always tend to ask people, what do you think it will be like on that day when you stand before God? And generally, people are pretty comfortable in saying, well, I think, you know, I've been, a, I've been a faithful husband, and I've been a good father, and I've cared for my children, and I haven't slipped around, and I haven't cheated on my... They, it's, it's like a lawyer building a case. They're, they're like marshalling. They're writing a brief, and here's what I'm going to present to God, and we're going to kind of sit down, and no, 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 look, look here's what I've done. And, and, and it's like it's a debate or deliberation with God. But I think this is more the picture of that judgment day. There'll be silence. He knows everything. Everything's already been exposed to him. There's nothing we can say that he doesn't know. So it's not as if we have some angle that we're going to change his mind. So if you're not a Christian, I would just plead with you to consider these things. What do you think of Christ? And, and, and for a minute, please don't just tell me what's cognitively resonant in your mind, but what is being revealed in your life? Does your life reflect the fruit of a soul that is worshiping this Messiah, fully God and fully man? But I think there's a word in here, not just for the non-Christian, but for the church. You know, we see the silence here. The church is not to be silent. You know, could we, from this passage, not be an encouragement to one another? Could we not speak of the excellencies of Christ? Can we not take the time and encourage one another over over this salvation? Folks, we've just seen that, that he has to open our eyes to this. I think about Peter, you know, the only other time Jesus asked, what do you think about the Christ, is when he asked his disciples in Matthew 16, he says, who do you say that I am? What do you think of the Christ? And remember how Peter said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. He got it. And he says, this has not been revealed to you according to the flesh, but by my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you didn't discern it. You didn't discover it. You're not smarter than the rest of them. God, in his own mercy, For whatever reason, we'll worship him forever for it, but he opened your eyes to see me this way. And if you claim Christ as your king, that's been a gift from God. Can we not encourage one another? Our conversation needs to be laced with the things that God has done for us, that we can encourage one another. I love to be encouraged. I stopped singing on that one song just to hear you sing truth to me. To be encouraged, you know, it's what the says, encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I mean, what percentage of conversation do you have with one another that is encouraging one another towards reflecting and rejoicing over this? Let it be more. Let it increase. You know, specifically bring up what he's done. Share it with somebody outside your family. Encourage them. This is what he's done for us. Let's rejoice over him. But also, let's not be silent with the world. You know, Jesus, think about it, in his evangelism, he wasn't confrontational, as I said, he's invitational. But not only that, he looks and finds support in the word. He goes to Psalm 110. Now remember, you know, when I evangelize, I always envision in my daydream of evangelizing, if there was like an angel there, or some letters in the sky, or something big and bold to confirm the message I'm giving, Jesus Didn't do that. He brought no more miracles to bear. He didn't outsmart them with logic in terms of getting them to believe. He just said, this is what the word says. He was comfortable with just saying, the Bible says this. Are we comfortable with that? Are we comfortable with speaking to the things of Christ, that he is a unique God-man sent to save us, according to the Bible, that we rest that the Bible, we are like grass here today and gone tomorrow, the word of God abides forever. So our faith in the word, declaring the truth, we share it, and then God saves through the folly of what you share. So it's, it's the last conflict until the trial scene that we'll get to at the turn of the year. But think about that. Jesus brought forth a bold question. What do you think about the Christ? He corrected their Their weak answer that he is both God and man sent to save. And yet he's patient with us, even in our stubbornness and our pride and our arrogance. So let's take a few minutes now and just silently confess to him if this has brought up areas of weakness or sin, or if you've been refreshed in how he has saved you by his grace, then let that well up in a word of thanksgiving and joy. And then Larry's going to close us in prayer. Thank you.